Hey everyone, you are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Ken, where our mission is to glorify God, helping each other become mature disciples of Christ as we worship, grow, serve, and reach. Take your Bibles and open up to Genesis chapter 34, okay? Genesis chapter 34. If you are just joining us, or fairly new to joining us, we've been going through the book of Genesis. And we started in July, in chapter 1, and we're going to go all the way to chapter 50. And over the last several weeks, we've been focusing uh, a lot of time and energy on this guy named Jacob. And I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not a big fan of Jacob. Really. Uh, I really hadn't spent a lot of time until we came to this series studying the life of Jacob. And uh, now, having studied the life of Jacob, it is uh, very clear that Jacob struggled a lot. And yet, in the midst of that, and in the midst of the mess, my goodness, And we're going to see more mess today. God is faithful. And if you could take this section of just Jacob's life, and uh, you could teach just that and focus in on the consistent faithfulness of God. And that's something every one of us should be able to walk away from this and go, God is faithful. Even in... The messes I create, God is faithful. And today, we really kind of bring a close to the focus on Jacob's life. He doesn't die yet, uh, but the focus after these chapters shifts largely to his son, Joseph. And I'm going to switch mics. Because this is... All right, you can bring me way down. Check one, two. There we go. So you don't have to. So I can move because that was the the cord on that. So every time I moved, it was going to go. And if you know me, I'm not going to stand still. So, so Jacob. After this point, we see a shift happen focusing on Joseph. And honestly, we can, we can really say this string of narratives is hard. It's hard to read. It's hard to understand how those who have experienced God so clearly can fall back so hard. And yet, 
isn't this the testimony of Israel throughout a lot of the Old Testament? (laughs) More importantly, isn't this the testimony of the church? That we can have testimony after testimony of what God has done. We have access to God's word. Teaching resources, community with one another, and yet many times we are utterly faithless in the face of trial and opposition. Aren't we? Today, specifically, we're going to focus on uh, this reality that Jacob's decisions throughout this narrative have lasting ripple effects. Upon generations to come. And so if you get nothing else out of today, I want you to to understand this. Disobedience today ripples in effect upon generations tomorrow. Because in the midst of the mess, what we see, the cause of that mess being largely is simply not walking in obedience to what God has commanded. And it's not that it's not understood what God instructed. It's simply that there are many times that it may seem easier to walk in our own way rather than in obedience to the God of creation. And that decision is not without its consequences. But we can deceive ourselves into thinking that those consequences stop with us. It doesn't. It has ripple effects. Chances are, uh, each one of you here are in some way who you are as the result of someone else's failings. Not in entirety. And what I'm saying in that is, whether it's a family member Or someone you should be able to trust. Or you fill in the blank. We can see clearly that when someone chooses to walk in godless disobedience, it ripples in effect. Now, if you recall from chapter 33, Jacob had just been shown extravagant mercy. Mercy from his brother Esau. Jacob himself testifies to the truth that seeing Esau was like seeing the face of God. That's chapter 33, verse 10. Furthermore, Jacob sees the graciousness of God upon him that he does not deserve. That's 33, verse 11. While this may bring us back to a place of giving Jacob an attaboy, Jacob, you get it. (laughs) It doesn't take long for Jacob to resort once more to his fleshly impulses and fears. Now, I want to preface this um, by going back just a little bit. 33. Okay, look at verse 12. So we're going to primarily be in 34 through 36. But I want to set the stage in 33, verse 12 through 17. And then I'm going to, I'm going to reference uh, Genesis 28, and you'll see why. Verse 12, this is right after Esau has come back. Jacob was fearful of him. Esau showed him great mercy, embraced him, 
Then, verse 12, Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me. And at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. Okay? Now, Seir is where Esau came from. Hang on to that. Because Jacob says, oh, I'm going to come. I'm coming. Look at 15. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth. And built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. So right out of the gate, um, Jacob lies to his brother. After he has just seen the great mercy of God upon his life, right away. Oh, I'm coming. I'm coming to Seir. I'll, I'll be there. I'm just going to be slower because we're tired. Nope. He stops short. Now, you might just look at this and go, well, maybe they just decided they were going to stay there. The problem with that is why we're referring back to chapter 28. So put your finger there and go back to 28. And if we go back to chapter 28, this was one of the first times that Jacob encounters the Lord. Where Jacob has run from home because he's fearful his brother is going to kill him for what he's done. And Jacob, in the middle of the wilderness, all alone, has this dream, this vision. And at the end of that, he wakes from sleep, if you remember this. Verse 15, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. This is God speaking to Jacob. And will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and he said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, he took the stone he put under his head. He set it up for a pillar. He poured oil on top of it and he called the name of that place Bethel. Everyone say Bethel. But the name of the city was lose at first. Then Jacob made a vow. Okay, First thing to recognize here, God said, I'm going to bring you back to this land. Speaking of this land where he is at. Then he makes this vow and says, if God will be with me and will keep in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God and this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth. So there is this declaration that God's full bringing Jacob back will be to this land. And Jacob vowing that I will make this place the house of the Lord. Every implication of this brings about the reality that it was expected that Jacob would come all the way back. And yet, he stops in Succoth. 
Now, you might be thinking at first thought, well, he's in proximity, right? So I'm going to show you this map and I'll zoom in here in a second. But I want to give you the perspective here that clear down, if you follow the red line, clear down to Beersheba. Okay, here, I'll zoom in for a second. Clear down to Beersheba. Okay, that's where Isaac dwelled. And then Jacob travels all the way up to Haran, where that's where Laban was. Okay, then he journeyed back and the blue line down there is where Esau came from, Mount Seir. All right. And Esau comes up and they meet up there somewhere in that area. Well, you could see how far Jacob actually got after telling his brother he was going to go to Seir. Furthermore, you see, he's still got a good distance between him and Bethel, let alone all the way back where Beersheba is in the midst of all of this. Okay, now here here is the thing that I want you to recognize in this. And you're going to understand why this is significant when we jump into 34, one of the most difficult texts in this narrative. It's this statement. Partial obedience is still disobedience. Right? The, mo- the, the Probably the, the easiest illustration of this, parents, you'll appreciate this. Children, you will not. If a parent says to their child, you need to clean your room. And after a bit of time, the child comes and says, okay, I'm done. And you go down and the room is not clean. It's cleaner, but it's not clean. Has the child obeyed? (laughs) No. (laughs) Okay. There's any number of other illustrations we could use for that. This simple statement that partial obedience is still disobedience. And the same applies in our relationship with the Lord. So easily we can convince ourselves that, well, I'm, I'm better than I was. Or I did a little bit of what God has asked me to do. And we become okay with halfway. And we need to stop and consider, one, that partial obedience is not obedience. It's, it's disobedience. And secondly, we need to consider what does my partial, what impact does my partial obedience to the things of God have on those around me? What ripple effects are there? Because disobedience today ripples in effect upon generations Tomorrow. Now, this is where I want to transition to chapter 34. Because this partial obedience of Jacob stopping after lying to his brother brings about consequences that should cause each one of us great discomfort. And that is probably the best way that I can describe chapter 34. Let me look. Let's look at verse one. Now, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, pay attention to that church. It's the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. 
And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter, Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. I get angry every time I read that statement. As a, as a father who has daughters, I get angry. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. What a mess, right? And yet in this, Jacob does nothing. We actually find ourselves, when we read this, agreeing more with Jacob's sons when they find out than we do with Jacob. They were very angry. And then Hamor, the father of Shechem, understand this is all taking place in Succoth, okay? He just tries to smooth things over, but he never once acknowledges the wrong that's been done here. Godless wickedness. What a mess. Now from here, if you jump to verse 13 with me, as they're talking about this, the sons of Jacob, Hamor, and basically says, what must we do? You know, we'll, we'll, let's make peace. I, after my son has done this outrageous thing, you know, let's, let's get along. Yeah. It makes sense. And... Jacob clearly doesn't respond to what should be done here. And so the sons of Jacob, Dinah's brothers, respond in verse 13. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem, his father Hamor, deceitfully because he had defiled their sister. So they answer them deceitfully. Everyone say deceitfully. Means they lied. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised. For that would be a disgrace to us. Now, if you're sitting here, you might be looking at that and going, what? How does this make any sense? This is where it's really important to go back and read further in Genesis. And what we find is, back with Abraham, who was the father of Isaac, who was the father of Jacob, God established his covenant with Abraham through this physical distinction known as circumcision. So, the fact that they would be saying this is deceitful because they're not wrong. They're not wrong in that, well, we can't, we can't give our daughter, our, our sister to one who is not in agreement, here's the thing, is not in agreement with us when it comes to who is our God. That was what it was supposed to be significant of. Verse 15, only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you, being circumcised. 
Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves. We will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Now, once the nation actually agrees to their demands, as they do, Simeon and Levi wait until day number three. And if you've ever had any kind of medical procedure or injury, day three is brutal. They wait till day number three, and then they storm into this nation of people, and they slaughter every single man in the, in the nation. In acting revenge, taking their sister out of that place, and then plundering all that the people had. Look at verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Everyone say, What a mess. Now, this text in 30 and 31 is really telling. Now, we aren't given a specific reason why Jacob didn't respond in a strong way like Dinah's brothers. Uh, It could be speculated that because Jacob loved Rachel and despised Leah, that because she was one of Leah's children, he didn't really pay much attention. We don't know. But then a couple observations that we can see in the midst of this is it reveals Jacob has yet to demonstrate a full surrender and dependence on the Lord. And you might ask, well, how how do you see that? Well, Jacob is more fearful of what these nations will do to him than he is the atrocities that have been committed against his own family. And in that, we see that Jacob had not fully grasped the promise that God had given him that I will go with you, I will bring you back to this land safely. None of that is seen. He doesn't fall back to the Lord. He doesn't seek the Lord for wisdom. In fact, not once is God or the Lord mentioned in chapter 34. Not once. And so then what do Dinah's brothers do? Jacob's sons. They take it upon themselves. They too do not seek the Lord. But rather take revenge of their own will. And as a result, a whole nation of people is slaughtered. The damage, the ripple effect of this. And we have to wonder, honestly, What would have happened differently if Jacob had continued his journey to where he said he was going to go? What would have happened if Jacob had walked in full obedience? Now, you can make the argument, it doesn't matter. What if statements are utterly useless because that's not what happened? 
But church family, what I want you to recognize and see is that the earthly consequences of godless behavior have lasting ripple effects. And oftentimes we do not pay attention to that. Oftentimes we just move on. And yet here we have entire populations of people, their lives forever changed. And we have to wonder what would have been different. Now, though God is not mentioned once in chapter 34, this drastically changes in chapter 35. Look at verses 1 through 4 with me. It says, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel. Oh, imagine that. And dwell there. Make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Everyone say, finally, Jacob instructs his people to purge themselves of that which was idolatrous amongst in their midst. But what shifted exactly? Scripture doesn't tell us what shifted. But this is hopeful. They journey on. God actually instills fear of them in the peoples of the land. So that they journey safely. And then God speaks to Jacob again. Look at verse 9 of chapter 35. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Now notice a pattern here. Anytime God shows up and declares a covenantal promise, who is it that will bring these things to completion? Who is it? It's God, right? He says, I am God Almighty. That's what God says about himself. And then I will do these things. Obedience to the Lord begins by us understanding that he is God and we are not. It starts there. Because if I am God of my own life, then I follow my own thoughts, my own will, my own decisions. That becomes priority. And God becomes a genie on the shelf that I call to when I'm in need. 
It's wrong. To recognize and actually believe what God says here, that he alone is God Almighty, and he alone will bring his purposes to pass, is the first step towards faithful obedience. Now, wouldn't it be nice at this point, if life evened out for Jacob, wouldn't it be nice if now that he is following the Lord, life would go well for him, struggles would dissipate, and prosperity would ensue? Wouldn't that be nice? Sometimes that's what we convince ourselves should be. And yet the consequences of our decisions have ripple effects. Think of how this also applies elsewhere throughout Scripture. When Moses acts in anger, all of a sudden the consequence of that is he doesn't get to go into the promised land. Because he acts in disobedience. Think about David. And his sin with Bathsheba, he kills her husband, Uriah. Even after he's repented and has come full circle and experiences the graciousness of God, the consequences of those decisions, they they still follow. Think about the Apostle Paul, who in Acts chapter 9 we see was someone completely different. In fact, he was persecuting Christians, killing them. When he came to faith in Christ, it took a long time for a lot of people in the church to be okay with him even being around. Because godless behavior has ripple effects that last generations. In the text that follows, Rachel dies in childbirth, giving birth to the youngest son named Benjamin. Then Reuben, another son, lays with his father's concubine, an utter act of rebellion and defiling his father's bed. Isaac dies at the end of chapter 35. And then chapter 36 details the lineage of Esau and all of his descendants. Little trivia fact for you, if you didn't know this. When it comes to the descendants of Esau, you may not realize that King Herod who had all of the babies killed when Jesus was born, out of threat of a king, was actually an Edomite, a descendant of Esau. Jesus, a descendant of Jacob. Little interesting fact there. In the midst of all of this, we see, and you're going to continue to see, the ripple effect of Jacob's decisions impact His family. You're going to see it as we step into the story of Joseph. When Joseph's own brothers get jealous. And they conjure up a story and lie to their father about what's happened to him. You're going to see this play out over and over again. And so the question I ask you in application to this church family. Is how will my actions today impact generations tomorrow? I hope that Jacob, in looking back on what took place in these portions of this narrative, regretted some of the choices he made. But we don't know. It doesn't say. My prayer is that you and I, when we reflect on our life in the past, that we can truly identify areas of our life that we regret. 
Because the reality is, the testimony of my past brings greater light to the graciousness of God. But how will my actions now, today, impact generations tomorrow? Another question as I was sharing this with a brother in Christ that he said was, what is the cost today of me saying, I will trust this to God later? What is the cost today of me saying, I will trust this to God later? The other reality I want you to gather from this narrative, and as we look at the life of Jacob and we think, what a mess, is this simple statement that our hope is not in Jacob. Jacob was not the one who was going to bring redemption. And yet, in the scope of all of this, clear back in Genesis, God had a redemptive plan for bringing His people to Himself. Our hope must not be in people, but in, this case, the God of Jacob. This quote from Kent Hughes says, The life of Jacob is about Almighty God who delivers his sinful people and fulfills his word amidst the residuals of sin. Jacob's life calls us to repent of our sin and obey God's call and direction in our lives. That patriarch's life assures us of the triumph of grace. So in closing, I want to speak three specific things. If you are living life in disobedience to God's way, there are consequences, both earthly and eternally. I exhort you to fear the Lord and walk in obedience. If you are in the midst of fighting to walk in obedience, it is worth the fight. Root yourself into God's Word, into His promises. Trusting His purposes will come to pass. Don't give up. If you're not sure where you are, maybe wandering in the desert sums up your spiritual life. I exhort you to surrender your life to God's plan. While we look at Jacob and easily recognize that he is unable to save us from our own sinfulness, Christ was sacrificed on our behalf as the perfect spotless lamb. And he is the only way. Trust in the faithfulness of God. Amen.